Chapter 14 of the Autobiography of George Dewey. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 14 Final Preparations for War. Mr. O. F. Williams, our counsel at Manila, diligently responded to my request for information and remained at his post in spite of threats and warnings that his life was in danger. Indeed, he did not obey when he had been three times cabled by his government to leave, and when he had been notified by the Governor-General of the Philippines that his safety could no longer be assured, as a mob or an assassin might kill him at any hour. Only upon receiving a peremptory request from me did he finally withdraw from his post and start for Hong Kong on April 23rd. The information which we had received from him, while naturally not technical, was highly valuable. Through him we learned of the mounting of six new guns on Corregidor at the entrance to Manila Bay, of the number of men of war and other vessels in the bay, of feverish activity upon the fortifications, and the state of the struggle of the Spanish with the insurgents. His copious cables and letters included all the extravagant rumors rife in the streets of the city. There was a persistent one of the imminent attack by the American squadron, another of the coalition of all Europe against the United States, and still another that our government was beseeching the Pope to intercede and save us from destruction by the army and navy of Spain, and this last was deemed so authentic that it was ordered to be publicly proclaimed in all the Philippine churches. In the midst of such canards, which received credence on all sides, the poor consul was at times much bewildered. However, we found that we had underestimated the resources of the defense. The number of vessels at Cavite was incorrect, and no report had been made of the twenty-odd small gunboats in Philippine waters, which by initiative and daring might have been utilized to make the entering of Manila Bay a hazardous undertaking. Moreover, there had been no proper enumeration of the shore batteries with their seventeen heavily rifled guns at the mouth of the bay and forty other guns mounted in the manila and cavite fortifications on march eleventh in cabling to washington a request that the two vital essentials ammunition and coal should be sent from san francisco i had stated that all the good coal in the market had been purchased by other governments and it was important to provide for a fresh supply. In answer, Secretary Long authorized me to contract for the delivery of 5,000 tons direct from England, if necessary, but it was not until I made another inquiry by cable on March 21st that I received any news as to a further supply of ammunition. Now, I learned officially, for the first time, that the Baltimore would reinforce my squadron, bringing the ammunition which was at Honolulu and on April 3rd came the definite word that she had left Honolulu for Hong Kong. The Baltimore was a most welcome addition to my force, though without her I had been quite ready to enter Manila Bay. Meanwhile, the coal which had been contracted for was on its way from Cardiff and the steamer Nanshan. On April 4th, I sent a cable to the department suggesting that the Nanshan should be purchased before the outbreak of hostilities. This idea had occurred to the department at the same time, and its cable on the subject crossed my own. It also authorized the purchase of another supply vessel, and placed at my service the revenue cutter McCullough, 
which uh, fortunately happened to be at Singapore en route to San Francisco. By this time our government was losing its uh, confidence in maintaining peace, for in his cable of April 5th, Secretary Long had said, War may be declared, condition very critical. Much credit is due to Pay Inspector D. A. Smith, who had charge of securing supplies and arranging the contracts for coal. His energy, tact, and business qualifications not only provided for the present exigencies, but made ample preparation for future supplies, which might be obtained in spite of the international limitation on purchases once war was begun. Assistance, which would be dependent entirely on the friendship and attitude of the British government, was not sufficient surety for a squadron 7,000 miles from home. In Chinese ports we might have a freedom that we could not have in the crown colony of Hong Kong, which was under the rule of a great, responsible European nation, which would immediately be held accountable by Spain if any leniency in enforcing the laws of neutrality should favor the United States. Accordingly, the commander of the old Monacassi, stationed at Shanghai, was set secretly to work. Through the medium of an efficient Chinese comprador, this officer soon perfected arrangements for an immediate or a future supply of coal or provisions, independent of international complications, an isolated locality for receiving these supplies, and for making temporary repairs, if necessary, to any ship of the squadron injured in battle, was selected. In a critical article on the Spanish War, so able a strategist as Admiral Luce said, quote, The defeat of the American squadron at Manila Bay, May 1, 1898, would have been a disaster the extent of which it would be difficult to compute. Failure to gain a decisive victory even would have been almost as bad as an actual defeat, for the American commander had actually no base to fall back upon, no point d'appui. The risks taken were enormous, but fully justified by the event. End of quote. His conclusion was only natural from the information he had at hand, because I had not communicated to the department our arrangements, which were quite obvious precautions to us who were on the spot. We appreciated that so loosely organized a national entity as the Chinese Empire could not enforce the neutrality laws. In this connection, I received rather a surprising cable on April 2nd from Secretary Long. He reminded me of the well-known international law that after the outbreak of hostilities, further supplies and coal could not be obtained at the neutral ports except to enable me to proceed home. He concluded as follows, quote, Only the Japanese ports are available as storehouse. Should advise storehouse at Nagasaki, Japan for the base of supplies or supply steamer to accompany the squadron. End of quote. If any nation in the world would be scrupulous in the enforcement of every detail of neutrality, it would be Japan. It hardly seemed possible that we could have made some secret diplomatic arrangement with her, of which I had not been fully advised. Indeed, such an arrangement was a little too good to be true to anyone who knew the Far East. In order to be sure of my ground, I sent this cable to the American minister to Japan. I'm informed in case of war with Spain, Japanese ports can be used by this squadron as base for supplies and coal. Is this correct? 
Minister Buck sent the following in return. Ports cannot be used as base for supplies and coal. Ships homeward bound could get them. Japan would concede nothing beyond strict neutrality. If I had acted on the Secretary's advice, not only should we have given a sensitive nation offense, but our squadron might have suffered a good deal of inconvenience. Having Minister Buck's cable, I knew that we were right in thinking that there was no dependence for a base except on Chinese ports. In answer to the first inquiry made of the commanding officer of the Monacassi at Shanghai, he said that he could obtain the supplies, but that there would be international complications in time of war. I told him that international complications, where the China of that day was concerned, were a secondary consideration, and to go ahead. In accordance with the department's consent, I bought the steamer Zafiro as a supply ship, but I did not comply with the department's suggestion to man and arm the Zafiro and the Nanshan. This would have given them the status of American naval vessels, and therefore made them subject to the restriction of neutrality laws, not to mention that they could uh, have been made of no real value as fighting units. We registered them as American merchant steamers, and by clearing them for Guam, then almost a mythical country, we had a free hand in sending them to English, Japanese, or Chinese ports to get any supplies we might need on the way to Guam. Their English crews, including the officers, with the spirit of true seamen, agreed not only to stand by their ships, but welcomed the prospect of an adventurous cruise, in order to have someone aboard who understood naval tactics and signals, an officer and four men from the squadron were detailed for each vessel. Now, with all preparations complete, we awaited the arrival of the Baltimore. Had the morale of the squadron for the next two weeks not been of the highest standard, it might have been affected by the reiterated statements of the Hong Kong papers that the strength of the forts at Manila and the extent of the minefields at the entrance to the bay in connection with the strength of the Spanish naval forces made Manila quite impregnable. The prevailing impression among even the military class in the colony was that our squadron was going to certain destruction. In the Hong Kong club, it was not possible to get bets, even at heavy odds, that our expedition would be a success, and this in spite of a friendly predilection among the British in our favor. I was told, after our officers had been entertained at dinner by a British regiment, that the universal remark among our hosts was to this effect, a fine set of fellows, but unhappily we shall never see them again. Every day of our last week at Hong Kong brought some new development. On the 17th, the McCullough arrived. On the 19th, the ships were painted war color. On the 21st, Washington cabled that war had not yet been declared, but might be at any moment. On the 22nd, we were delighted by the sight of the Baltimore steaming into the harbor. And on the 23rd, I received a letter from the acting governor of Hong Kong, Major General Black, enclosing an official promulgation of the War Neutrality Proclamation, and requesting that our squadron should leave the harbor not later than 4 p.m., April 25th. We had arranged to have a dock empty and ready to receive the Baltimore immediately she arrived, and the vitally important work of cleaning and painting her underwater body was uh, accomplished before the expiration of the time limit set by the governor. As a passenger, 
on the incoming Pacific Mail steamer came Commander B. P. Lamberton, who had been detailed by the department to command the Boston. But Captain Frank Wildes of the Boston was not the sort to give up his command on the even of engagement without a protest. Oh, the matter was easily arranged to the satisfaction of both by having Lamberton take up his duties on the flagship as my chief of staff. Thus I secured the aid of a most active and accomplished officer at a time when there was positive need of his services, but not until later did I realize how much I owed to the sympathetic companionship of Lamberton's sunny, hopeful, and tactful disposition. For other reasons, Lamberton's arrival was most fortunate. Both of the senior officers of the flagship Olympia were so out of health as to be barely fit for routine duty while neither was equal to undergoing the fatigue of an active campaign. The executive officer was therefore invalided home, and his place taken by Lieutenant C. P. Reese of the Monocacy. Ill as he was, it was not in my heart to refuse the request of gallant Captain Gridley to remain in command. In a month after the victory, he too was invalided home, and died in Japan on the way. Since April 15th, repeated cables to Consul Williams at Manila advised him to come to Hong Kong. But it was not until the 23rd that the British Consul at Manila wired me that Williams had safely started on the Esmeralda. It was this news that led me to cable to Washington that I should go to Mears Bay to await his arrival. On the 24th, the Boston, Concord, Petrel, McCullough, the Collier, Nanshan, and the supply ship Zafiro left Hong Kong for this anchorage, which was some thirty miles away. The next day, Monday, April 25th, the Olympia, Raleigh, and Baltimore followed. The Raleigh was crawling under one engine in consequence of a breakdown in a circulating pump. Now, this was repaired that night at the Kowloon Dockyard opposite Hong Kong, and was promptly on board the ship the next morning. The ammunition brought by the Baltimore was distributed among the ships, which were thoroughly cleared for action. The crews were exercised again at sub-caliber target practice and battle quarters, and the squadron finally put upon a war footing with regard to armed watches, suppression of night lights, and other details. Meanwhile, we kept up communications with Hong Kong by means of a tug, chartered for the purpose, and Flag Secretary Caldwell remained in the city until the squadron left Mears Bay to keep in telegraphic touch with Washington. Meanwhile, Mr. J. L. Stickney, a graduate of Annapolis who had resigned from the service to enter journalism, had appeared and asked permission to come on board for the battle. As the Olympia was shorthanded for junior officers, I decided to make him my volunteer aide, while Caldwell was assigned to the guns. At 12.15 p.m. on the 25th came this cable from Secretary Long. War has commenced between the United States and Spain. Proceed at once to Philippine Islands. Commence operations, particularly against the Spanish fleet. You must capture vessels or destroy. Use utmost endeavor. We were ready to obey. But Consul Williams, who had so persistently delayed in spite of my requests, had not yet arrived, and knowing that he was due within two days, I determined to wait for him, in the hope that he might bring some later information concerning the defenses. On the morning of the 27th, the little tug Fame was sighted in the distance with him on board and bringing important news, as we shall see later. 
the commanding officers of the squadron were directed to assemble on the flagship for a general conference in relation to the latest details which he had brought meanwhile signal was given to prepare for getting under way fires were spread and at two p m after the consul had gone on board the baltimore and the captains returned to their ships the squadron was in motion we proceeded in two columns the fighting ships forming one column and the auxiliary vessels another twelve hundred yards in the rear and with a smooth sea and favoring sky we set our course for the entrance to manila bay six hundred miles away end of chapter fourteen